Hello, my name is Caitlin and I'm a student at St. Lawrence University. Welcome to NetConnect, a show where I interview St. Lawrence alumni and give students the opportunity to learn more about networking and hear from alumni across multiple fields while giving alumni a platform to share their stories and advice. St. Lawrence has the number four ranked alumni network in America, so join me as I tap into this amazing family. Caitlin. Hi, how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Good to see you again. Still at home in Vermont. Yep. <laughs> Still yep. home. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm good. It's 75 degrees in DC today. Yeah, it's so nice today. It's like 60 here, which is nice. unheard of. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really nice. Um, so I guess I can start off just reading your LinkedIn bio so they have a good idea of like who they're hearing from. Um, so Nick Pennyman graduated St. Lawrence University in 1992 with a BA in philosophy. He's an experienced co-founder and CEO of multiple organizations with a demonstrated history of working in philanthropy, media, politics, and social entrepreneurship. He is also the author of many articles and a book on democracy and political reform. How's that? Great. <laughs> awesome. So I and I'm sure any of the students listening would love to hear what your career path was like after SLU and how that led you to starting issue one. And also I'd love to know like if the SLU network has helped you at all along the way. So I was, um, I was uh, as you just said, a philosophy major, which I thought was a great major um, uh, to have because it teaches you how to write and think um, and also teaches you how to you know, examine life in general, life, ethics, morality, love and death, <laughs> you know, all the big topics. It teaches you how to be a human, plus it teaches you how to write and think. Um, and got out and uh, knew I wanted to do something in kind of uh, democracy and media. So my first job out of college was, I was a newspaper editor. I ran a local newspaper in Massachusetts for a couple of years called the Lincoln Journal. And along the way, I, there was an event one night in Lincoln, uh, Massachusetts, uh, that I covered, which was a meeting of a group called the Alliance for Democracy. And uh, I thought I would attend and just kind of see what they were up to. And it was a fascinating meeting. They were talking about the role of huge corporations in uh, you know, dominating policymaking and dominating our lives. They were talking about political reform, like getting money out of politics as a means of emphasizing or or value, value, valuing the, um, the public interest over the interests of corporations. And I got so compelled by them, in fact, that I started talking more to them and became their first executive director. This was in the late 90s. And ran that group for about three years. And then, um, and then got a call from a guy named Bill Moyers, who was a, a broadcaster at PBS, a big news guy who probably none of the people listening to this podcast know of, but <laughs> over the age of 40, certainly know who Bill Moyers was or is. Um, and, and Bill then kind of brought me back into, he and I developed a friendship and he brought me back into the media. Um, so I then worked at the American Prospect magazine in Washington as an editor. I ran the Washington Monthly magazine as publisher. Um, I helped start uh, a division of Huffington Post because I had developed a friendship with Ariana Huffington. Um, and then kind of along the way of doing journalism in Washington about Washington, it became more and more clear to me that, um, that 
journalism and facts were losing their currency in the policy making process in DC. And the reason why is because the political system had become so rigged over time because of the role of money in politics, because of gerrymandering and things that, that people have kind of heard of, that you know, the ability for the policy making process or the political process to actually respond appropriately mm -hmm. to the facts before us as a society was just getting diminished. So what I mean by that is climate change, just take climate change as one issue that I know a lot of SLU grads and SLU, SLU um, kids care about. Mm -hmm. You know, we've, we've been, there's been good reporting facts coming out about climate change for 30 years now, 30 years. And we've had virtually no federal policy response to climate change. There was one moment in 2009 when Obama was president in which the Democrats tried to push a huge climate change bill. And, and at this point, the Democrats had, were running the White House, they were running the Senate, and they, they also had the House, and they couldn't get that bill done. You wanna know why? Because of the power of the coal companies, the oil companies, and others who didn't want that bill to pass, even though the Democrats had everything, right? Mm -hmm. The power of money in politics, the power of partisanship in Washington ended up winning and they smothered that bill. So that's just one example of where the facts are before us, we know that climate change is occurring, and yet there, what, there hasn't been a meaningful policy response. You can play that scenario out across the cost of healthcare in America, the, the, the decline of the middle class and the rise of a plutocracy, whatever you, you know, kind of whatever your issue is, it's not getting addressed at scale, you know, proportionally in Washington because of the dysfunctions of our political system. So that's what led me to create issue one, uh, which was six years ago, as a means of pursuing political reform in DC. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think you guys are doing such good work. And I read that issue one is like the leading cross-partisan political group in DC. Um, and like our nation is so divided right now. So I'd love to hear kind of more about what your company does and like the different things you're working on. Yeah, so it, issue one is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, we have 30 staff. Uh, our, our offices are in downtown DC. Um, and we, we work on federal legislation to improve democracy. Um, so we've got three major realms. Number one is uh, money in politics. What I just mentioned, and you know, trying to improve transparency around money in politics, trying to reduce the influence of money over politics and the policymaking process, and again, just for the sake of getting the public interest a better hearing versus the corporate interests and the private interests in society. Number two is congressional reform, and what I mean by that is how to make the House and Senate more functional problem-solving bodies and institutions. Um, there are lots of reasons why that we could go through later if you want to, but for the last 30 years, we've really depleted the capacity of the House and the Senate to solve problems um, and to work together across the aisle to like find meaningful compromises and, and solutions. And there's a bunch of stuff that if we could change um, in the House and in the Senate, which relate to the rules of the House and the Senate, which relate to the staffing of the House and Senate, a bunch of other stuff, it would actually improve the, the likelihood that, that we could get problems solved in Congress. And then the, and then the third piece 
um, is election integrity, which we worked a lot on in the last six months leading up to the 2020 elections. And, and there's just a whole lot of stuff that we need to do in America to make sure that um, people, you know, not only are voting in robust numbers, but also that um, their votes are protected. And what we're seeing right now at the state level is 250 pieces of legislation. We'll probably soon be at 260. Right now, 250 pieces of legislation at the state level to restrict voting. And that's in anticipation of the 2022 and 2024 elections. Um, and what restrictions look like is it looks like rolling back absentee voting, which is really important for students, you know, um, your ability to vote by mail or vote absentee, rolling that back. Um, there are all kinds of rollbacks that are occurring. Rolling back early voting, which then restricts, of course, the ability for poor people and who are oftentimes people of color to be able to vote because those are the people who vote early. You know, they can't take time off of work on a Tuesday because they work at a job where they just can't do it, you know. Um, but they could they could vote early on the weekends. Well, th now there are tons of bills that are, will restrict or roll back um, uh, early voting, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, it's pretty terrifying. As the Washington Post recently said, it's perhaps the greatest retraction of voting rights since Jim Crow. Uh, and we're seeing it right before us right now. So we're also working on that at issue one. That's such important stuff. Like I, I applaud you and, and everything that you're working to do because it's really important, I think. Um, I'd love to talk about social media a little bit because it's been obviously like super beneficial in sharing ideas and kind of making the public aware of injustices that normally go unnoticed and just having conversations. But it's also been very harmful because it's so easy to share false information with lots of people. And like we talked about it, I think when we first met, but like the algorithms on social media only kind of feed people content that it knows that they will engage with or agree with. So do you believe that there's a way to gain people's trust in the media again? or like any way to ensure honest journalism? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd roll, roll the people's memories back to the early parts, the early kind of history of the internet. So, you know, back in the 1990s, when I was getting out of college, um, the narrative about the internet was that it was gonna be a liberating force for society, that when you free up information and you free up people's ability to access and produce information, that democracy will benefit in the end. And not just will it strengthen existing democracies like American democracy, but it will also give the ability for democracy to potentially take root in parts of the world where democracy does not exist. And, and just to remind the students listening to this, only about 40% of the world's population actually live in functional democracies. 60% live in, in either autocratic or authoritarian societies like China, um, or they live in marginal democracies like Russia. Um, they kind of have the pomp and circumstance of democracy, but they aren't really democracies. Um, so, you know, for the 40% of people who live in democracy, the notion was the internet would be great, it would strengthen. And for the 60% who don't, the theory was, well, um, you know, they'll have a better chance of actually creating democracy or fomenting democracy. The opposite has proved to be true. The exact opposite. So 
if you look at uh, the rankings by Freedom House, which is the best organization in, in the world that tracks um, the, the either rise or fall of democracies in various countries, as Freedom House has said, we have entered in the last 20 years a global democracy recession. So we're seeing even countries that started becoming democracies like Poland and Thailand and Kenya, where democracy was taking root, in the last decade or so, we've actually seen them retract and fall back into becoming authoritarian societies. And obviously in, in established democracies like America and France, what we're seeing is tremendous struggles with democracy. I mean, the democracy in America, you know, is arguably under greater threat and greater strain than it has been any time in my lifetime and I'm 50 years old. So, um, you know, the, the internet has proved to actually be an enabler of disinformation, an enabler of polarization. You know, it's pulling us farther apart because it's, it's pushing us into these little bubbles of information and, and we don't interact with other bubbles of information as a result. And it's proving to be, uh, 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 you know, a device, uh, an entity that makes conversation, especially public conversation, harsher and meaner and not nicer and more thoughtful. Um, so in every measure right now, you could argue that, that if you had to make a choice, is the internet good for democracy or ba bad for democracy? Arguably it's bad for democracy. Now that's not, you know, there are certain benefits to it obviously too, and I'm not trying to overlook those, but right now the way the internet is structured, it is not working for democracy and the social media companies are at the center of that, Twitter or Facebook. So, you know, if you are, and sorry, I know those are, those are for older people. So whatever, Instagram, <laughs> Snapchat, what you're right, TikTok. Um, yeah, what, you know, what these companies, what they, you know, the way they make their money is by feeding you stuff that they think you want to eat, right? Whether that's a post from your friend about a hamburger that he or she just ate, or whether it's an ad for a snowboard because they know that you're snowboard shopping or whether it's whatever, like that's their business model. They're gonna keep track of everything you do on the internet and then they're gonna feed you ads and feed you information that they think you will wanna eat because then you will stay on their, on their platforms longer and you will click and you will benefit from them. Um, and so, you know, so here you've got a situation where basically um, as a result, they're not going to feed you news that's going to counteract stuff that they think you might agree with. So if you, let's say that they, they know that you're a conservative, they're probably not going to feed you a piece of news or information that conflicts with your conservative viewpoint or vice versa. If they think you're a liberal, they're not going to feed you something that conflicts either. If a friend of yours posts something that seems to be very enthusiastic about Trump, you're probably less likely to see that than something that's enthusiastic about Biden um, if you're a Democrat. So as a result, you just kind of get driven farther and farther and farther into this like gopher hole of, of your own comfort zone and you never get out of it. You're never gonna see conflicting information. You're never gonna see conflicting posts by your friends. And arguably in a democracy, that's not good for us. Yeah. So I know it's a long explanation, but I do want to, I just want to, you know, I think that, that fundamentally challenging the very nature of the internet and the story that's being told about it as this liberator, as this freer is really crucial right now. We got to be big picture because we need to fundamentally change the way information flows online 
And the only way we can do that is if we're telling the big story about it. Yeah. It's so important like to hear conflicting viewpoints because like as much as that kind of makes people uncomfortable now, like that's the only way to actually have conversations that are meaningful, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, here, here's the other piece about it too, is that, um, and I think you and I talked about this before, when I was growing up, there were gatekeepers of information. Mm -hmm. so when I was growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, we had the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which was the local paper. At our house, we also got Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, and then we watched one of the three nightly news networks, ABC, NBC, or CBS. Those were basically, that was the like, totality of, of political information in our lives, political and news information in our lives was pretty much being pressed through four or five gatekeepers. Well, what did all those gatekeepers have in common? What they all had in common is that they were committed to the project of journalism. And the people who worked at them were committed to that, those, that project too. So, you know, the folks that I, when I was reading articles or when I was watching Tom Brokaw on a nightly news broadcast, not only the head of that broadcast, but everyone underneath that person would get fired if they got the facts wrong repeatedly. You know, one, two times, you're okay, you get stung. Three, four times, you get fired. You're like literally kicked out of the news outlet if you get it wrong too many times. So here's the great value of that. That might seem like totally restrictive for people <laughs> who are listening to this. Here's the tremendous value of that. Most of the information that I got in my life was factual. Probably 95% or 98% of the information that I was consuming when I was in high school and then college was factual. It was history books that had been vetted by academics, you know, and approved by the schools that were handing me the history books to read. It, and then it was magazines, newspapers, and TV news, and then some radio news. It was all factual. People wanted to get the facts straight, number one. Number two, I was having a basically a common conversation with other people around the country who were also engaged in the same set of facts that I was engaged in. So at the same time that I was watching Tom Brokaw in St. Louis, so were people in Walla Walla, Washington, and New York City, and Biloxi, Mississippi. And they were also reading Time and Newsweek and then a local paper, right? So we were all basically engaged in the same conversation about America. We had the same narrative, and we had the same set of facts. We could then fight about and disagree with what to do with the facts, like, but we couldn't dispute the facts. What's happened today with this information is that, is that the zone of public debate has been flooded with fake news, falsehoods, misperceptions, misinformation, and then, and then outright brutal, ridiculous conspiracy theories like QAnon. Those end up you know, online actually being more attractive to people than facts and news. In fact, there have been multiple studies done just in the last two months since the siege of the Capitol building on January 6th about how um, on all of the social media platforms, conspiracy theories around the election were getting multiple more clicks than facts about the election itself. On Parler, which is, was like the setup as the alternative Twitter, um, where a lot of the right wingers went once, once Trump got, you know, was getting, was getting tweaked and then banned from Twitter, nearly 70% of the links related to the election on Parler leading up to January 6th were either disinformation or fake news. 
Wow. So, so that's what you end up with in this current media environment. You end up with a, a complete diminishing of the facts, like almost a sidelining of the facts, a rise of disinformation and fake news, and then a completely a total inability for us as a country to have a common, reasonable conversation. Yeah. Do you have any tips for kind of like verifying the quality of a news source? Yeah, I, it's not, you know, in a way it's not that hard. Like if you just, if you just look at, you just need to go to a brand, a big brand. I mean, if you, whether it's, you know, if you live in Cleveland, Ohio, it's the Cleveland Plain Dealer, right? That's your local paper. They're trying to get it right. Mm -hmm. If you want, or you read the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or USA Today or, you know, whatever, the Boston Globe, like any one of these big brands, these legacy media brands has an ethos and has had an ethos for more than a hundred years of trying to get the facts right. I mean, TV yeah. isn't a hundred years old, but TV go, go, goes back to 1950s, um, uh, you know, that's 70 years. They try to get it right. So just stick with the big brands. And I just would not pay so much attention to, you know, any of the, the little brands or the newer stuff that crops up. I mean, there are places like Vox that people know about that try to get it right. You know, but then there, there are other places like BuzzFeed that I'm sure they try to get it right, but I bet that the fact-checking operation at BuzzFeed is not fact-checking, you know, everything that goes yeah. up before there. <laughs> but then there are other places that you all, that, that people there maybe have heard about, like the Atlantic magazine. You know, the Atlantic magazine has been around for more than 150 years at this point. Like, that's a great brand also. Not something that a lot of young people probably know about, but would be a wonderful place to, for people to go once they get bored with the mainstream newspapers, if you can ever get bored with something like the New York Times, which produces hundreds of articles a day. Yeah, there's so much content being pushed out. Yeah. Um, my last question is, what advice do you have for students who are interested in journalism or kind of any career in the communications field? Um, I would say um, learn how to write, number one. That's the, that's the key thing. You just got to write really snappy, good stuff, uh, especially these days where you, you know, you got to hook the reader in the first three or four sentences or you're screwed. You're not, you're never going to come with you. Yeah. Um, uh, number two, learn to be curious. Um, you know, the more curious the reporter is about what they're writing, the more interesting the piece is going to be in general. If you, you know, you can kind of tell when someone's writing something and yawning, while they're writing it. Um, so just maintain your sense of curiosity. And then number three, I really would, you know, if you're, if you want to go into the industry, I really would try to go into one of the, one of the legacy brands, you know, go to, go to a, 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 a newspaper, go to a magazine, go to a place like a CNN that that's got a lot of money. They're, they're, you know, they're figuring out their business models, their business, you know, their business models got totally hammered in the last 20 years because of the rise of social media, social media, for those who don't know, just sucked away all the revenue from newspapers across America because their their whole thing, like Facebook makes all their money off of advertising and they yeah. came up with a better model for advertising. So, the, but these places are figuring out new business models and it's just better to go there if you can um, because you're going to get a better experience. You're really going to learn what journalism is as opposed to, you know, producing clickbait, which is what you're going to, which is basically what you'd be doing in a lot of other places. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I feel like we, we covered a lot of good stuff in a short amount of time. <laughs> yeah.
I agree. Well, great. I'd love to do it again. I mean, this, the, the conversation about renewing democracy in America is gonna, can only get, you know, um, more intense and more important in the coming year. So happy to come back. Yeah. Um, once this episode's done and up on Spotify, I'll, I'll make a post on LinkedIn and tag you and issue one. So you know when it's done. Great. Okay. All right, Caitlin. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. All right. See ya. Bye.